Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Undersampled Radio. Special in two ways. One, actually three ways. One, because it's episode number 50. Wow. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Special way number two, because Matt isn't here. <laughs> I think uh, we don't know what's happened to Matt. Hopefully, he'll show up at some point. Um, but uh, in case anybody knows about his... Um, Whereabouts, please post that on Slack. We hope he's okay. <laughs> and, and of course, reason number three is we have our longtime friend and third time guest, I think, Dr. <laughs> Chris Jackson, live and direct. What's up, man? I'm, uh, I'm good, yes. Pleased to be here. I don't know if I am supposed to masquerade as Matt for the next kind of 50 minutes or whether. You want me to revert to my natural character? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not can, sure if it's my. You can do both parts if you want. I need to perfect my Cambridgeshire accent and uh, <laughs> and obviously, uh, yeah, look a little bit different. Yep, that's right. Oh, by the way, I forgot. I was going to mention this at the beginning before we get into it. Speaking of how things look, um, this episode we are going to be showing some awesome photos from a. Uh, well, I'll let you. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Some awesome photos, and so if you can tune into the video, and if you can't, we will post these pictures um, with a link in the show notes after the the recording happens. But do do try to turn it tune in, and if you can't do so live, you can do it uh, afterwards by searching under sampled radio on YouTube. So, take it away, Matt. <laughs> well, of course, what I need to say now, now, I'm not even sure if Matt talks like that, it's just, it's, it's a problem if you're from the UK, anybody who's not from where you're from, you assume sounds either posh or poor, um, so I just assume Matt's not from where I'm from. <laughs> um, yes, well, hello everyone, I am uh, honoured to be here again a third time, I think the last time I was on the show, it couldn't have been more different, we were in downtown Manhattan, with beer and uh, yeah it was kind of slightly strange wasn't it but it was it was it was amazing fun and the more I think about it the more fun it was <laughs> it was a lot of fun we were calling it sock sessions because we were soaking wet it was pouring outside when we went to uh, obtain said beer we got soaked and we took off our shoes and videoed ourselves just having a random conversation you can also check that out on our channel and you should so Chris you just got back from a from a big trip What's that about? Yeah, so I, I was down in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, right in the easternmost part at the border with Rwanda in a city called Goma. Um, so I've, I've been there for three weeks uh, with a BBC film crew. So we were recording um, a two-part um, documentary science series, which will probably air early next year. Um, yeah, it was amazing. It was, I think this, along with maybe some of that lecture tour, which I wrote about in my blog post, the GSA thing, is probably one of the 
professionally and personally one of the most enriching without sounding really wanky and soft you know it was one of the most enriching sort of experiences in my life it was just amazing um to go down there anyway to see what we saw yeah but also in terms of learning something new it was very chastening to realize that when you step into doing something new in this case trying to present a tv show yeah how hard it is i guess you have a newfound respect for people who do things which you might from the outside looking in think look quite straightforward but it's not did you get any training did the bbc give you oh. any t tv training they did hold on i can see i can see matt hall on my screen he's on mute right now i don't know if he can hear us but uh we we are live <laughs> at the moment matt and uh, we are glad to have you here. Can we hear you yet? No. Yes, we can hear you. Yes, you can? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can hear you too. Hello, Matt, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm a bit flustered, actually. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, are you okay? <laughs> I guess. Yeah? Uh, okay. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. Good. I was, I was, Totally engrossed in a uh, getting a manuscript ready. Ah. <laughs> we uh, we it's, so we were, we just put the call out on Software Underground to make sure if you were okay. If anyone knew of your whereabouts, please. I'm so S sorry. So we sent we sent an Amber Alert out. Uh, your photo and uh, your uh, <laughs> your blood type. All right. Uh, no, he's okay, everyone. Uh, it's, it's okay. Crisis averted. I'm so, um, sorry. so so let me no, just give you a little. Summary so far, um, we've introduced uh, Chris Jackson again uh, back to the show, and we've actually had Chris uh, doing your part as well. So he's been oh. performing Matt and Chris, and nice. uh, doing admirably. So um, okay, so you've already yeah. done the conference, very erudite, wise, worldly Matt. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Well, I, I'll see you guys next next time. Uh, Chris was just telling us about his experience with BBC. He's not he was not previously a TV guy and now yeah. he's a he's a big star. So uh, Chris did they give you any any training any tips about how to how to be on TV? Yeah, it was it was a very interesting experience because I was contacted out of the blue. So I've never done anything on TV before. So I literally got an email on in the middle of November last year asking me if I'd be interested in contributing to a program about volcanoes in Africa. So it was very, very vague. And then eventually I kind of talked more and more about what was going to happen. What was quite, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but what was quite funny is the original discussion was around um, partaking in some of the science. So some of the experiments and instrumentation that were going to be deployed in these volcanoes, but reflection seismology and interpretation of reflection seismic data for all the obvious logistic reasons, that wasn't going to be practicable in in an area with armed groups that had seen massive humanitarian conflict, right? So it wasn't it wasn't going to be um, possible. So eventually, the discussion kind of changed a bit more towards me acting as a kind of presenter, but trying to translate some of the science that was being done by the, the real scientist, I'll say. <laughs> so, um, so people have been teasing me, you know, in this I'm not a scientist, I'm, I am kind of an interested done. So it was kind of nice in that respect, because I'd learned a huge amount 
by just interacting with these the, the groups from Belgium and from the US it was, and from the local observatory. Um, but yeah, getting into it was kind of strange. And then training, but um, yeah, they kind of tell you about, I don't know, how to how to talk and how to look at the camera or not look at the camera and things. So there's some practical things in there, but it's it's you know I don't know what you think, but a lot of documentary science documentaries you don't want it to be too scripted. They actually want a very conversational style of presentation. So and the BBC were going for that with this as they have as they do with a lot of their programs. But I don't know what you think about how scripted you think things should be. I think there's been a change in the past 10 years in documentary presentation style and David Attenborough aside, uh, it's a lot of fun to, and maybe actually maybe I've just gotten nerdier, but I think it's a lot of fun to watch science documentaries now because they aren't scripted, as you say. I mean, it's not, it's not just technical jargon and specifications. It's, it's a conversation and it's the passion of the, of the presenters comes across in that conversational way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to kind of, you know, dumb down the science too far so that people could sort of get it from a, you know, like a Christmas cracker, really. You need to kind of give them enough that there's something interesting in there. But it, it is, it, it, I, like I say, it was, an, it was an incredibly kind of chastening slash rewarding experience because you learn that when you're trying to talk to people about what you do, how, not just how you do it with your enthusiasm for it, but actually the words you use, the way you construct things is really, really important as well. So just for a general psychom point of view, um, although this was a total baptism of fire for me to do it in front of, you know, two huge cameras with a director in the middle of a volcano in Congo. It was, I could have <laughs> probably chosen an easier route here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't watch a lot of science documentaries, but... Um, the, the, there seems to be a trend, at least in North American, sort of uh, made-for-TV documentaries where, and maybe this has died down again, but the sort of Discovery Channel, like, you know, the deadliest spider and the kind of, this is a billion degrees and all that kind of superlatives everywhere. Um, I can't stand that. So, uh, and my perception is that the BBC hasn't gone down that road. It's much more sort of, uh, um, you know, it's not quite open university um, and it's maybe not life on earth in the 1980s, but there's something in between that's accessible, entertaining, because fundamentally it's, it's got to be entertaining. And, um, and you know, but, but factually reasonable and kind of grounded. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can't say too much about all the details, and partly because a load of the stuff we did probably won't make the cut. But um, definitely, that the, you know, the word is jeopardy, right? So this idea that you know everything is just about to fall apart, and you and you know, it's all very kind of big graphic. So you know, I can say there's no graphics in this. There's no like whiz bang special effects with. You know, there's not going to be any of that, and and that is something which has gone through a lot of science documentaries. Right. So you know, the the people not do that. You know, and all the danger. You know, volcanoes. As soon as you say volcanoes, people, everybody assumes you're going to be in a silver suit with a ladle, spooning a bit of zero age lava. <laughs> I did. And um, with like lava bombs going. Yeah, exactly. With lava bombs going off, but you know, 
when you get when when if you get to doing that sort of science you have to question whether it's really required you know most people don't need to you know the only reason you'd be doing that is for the, the cameras right. could argue how many how many takes did it take i mean did you guys go over and over you again? can you can ask that question another way Greg. you could ask it that way <laughs> <laughs> And, then, answer um, that question. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know what the, 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 the kind of ratio is, but you know, this is going to be two hour-long programs, and um, we probably recorded, you know, anything between sixty and hundred hours of film. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's not simply due to takes. That's just because you're recording things. I guess which might not make the cut. So things that are in the kind of story of the program that might not. Um, eventually make it. There were some things where we did it, you know, and you do it in a kind of one take. But more commonly, it's probably, you know, four or five takes because you you stop talking and then you stop and then you lose your thread or you do one take and then they, you know, there's, oh, but we need you, you forgot this word or you use this word which wasn't really that, um, you know, really that accessible to the audience and things. So mm -hmm. could you try a different word? So there's lots of you know, they care a lot about how it's put together, but there's always that balance between scientifically what we or what I wanted to, the, the viewer to know and what was plain dull and actually, you know, was, they needed something to progress the story. So there's, there's always that tension. Um, but you can discuss it and debate it with the, with the, with the group. So it, it's, it was a really good experience. Yeah. Cool. And is there further sort of voiceover stuff to do or anything like that? Or is it basically done now as far as you're concerned? There's, yeah, I, there's a, you know, they'll put on a comms track. So they'll basically have somebody who's linking things going, Matt turned up late to the undersampled radio broadcasting, Graham and Chris. You know, there'll be something like that. Right. Which links different bits. But I'm not, that's, that's somebody famous who's actually famous okay. to do that. <laughs> Someone who's already famous, you mean? It's not someone who's going to be famous. <laughs> a proto-famous person. <laughs> so incipiently famous. Give us a no, give, no, no. I mean, give us a chronological uh, the overview of of what you did in order of how the trip went. Yeah, yeah and it, also, I mean, I'm quite interested. Down to yeah, Sorry, I was just going to say, you, you mentioned there was like 200 tons of equipment or something. <laughs> Maybe I'm misremembering, but it seemed sounded phenomenal. So I'm quite yeah. interested in like how that all played out too. I think there's some photos I've sent you. There was uh, 92 bags or so of tons of equipment. That's mental. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is a full-on... It is an expedition. I mean, it's like full on, you know, big ass 120 liter birdhouse duffel bags packed with, you know, gear. There's big cameras, there's pelly cases with super expensive, tens of thousands of pounds worth cameras, mix sound mixing. You know, there's, there's a, you know, this 15, 16 human beings going down to make this. So it's a big, really big logistical effort to, to put something like this together. And, and, mm. and that's the sort of thing that probably doesn't come across when you watch something that's been nicely cut and edited oh. and the music's playing and, you know, there's all the titles running. But the, 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 the effort of the people to, to make it happen is, is really impressive. So we, we flew from London down to Kigali in Rwanda, 
some people came from Belgium, some people came from uh, all the way from the US, from Arizona and, and, and Idaho. Wow. Um, and then we went across, got settled in Goma in the city. And then we did the big hike up, hike up to Niragongo, the first volcano we stayed at the summit of. A um, couple of nights there, bad weather, a few issues. We couldn't go down the day we planned to. But then we abseiled into the crater and camped there for three nights in the crater. Hmm. Um, you know, and then kind of then came back out and things. And um, so that was a big part of what we did was being down in the in the crater. Yeah. Um, and then we came out and did a number of smaller pieces around Goma to kind of put the volcano in context of the people and the, the kind of broader geodynamic landscape, the overall volcanic landscape. So it was, um, yeah, it was it was just yeah hugely impressive and very 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 tiring. <laughs> yeah, you know, every day up at five thirty doing something for the first time, getting back at seven six o'clock at night. It's just. Yeah, really. Yeah, really hard work, but amazing fun. We did a big UN helicopter flight as well, um, up to another volcano called Nyamulagira, which we tweeted some pictures of from a group of us. Um, mm. That was just incredible, flying with the UN pilots. Um, you know, okay. You know, I think you know. You, you you think about it, right? You say to somebody you get to go on a helicopter, that's exciting. You say to somebody they get to go on a UN helicopter, that's even more exciting. You then say, you get to go on a UN helicopter and land in the crater of a volcano. You'd be at that point saying, you make this up. Um, and, we, and then, you know, we're going to take off and we're going to do some tactical maneuvers and we're going to see giant hippos <laughs> while we're flying back. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you're just honored to sort of live through those, those experiences. Um, yeah, it was, and that's why, you know, I'm, I can't wait for people to see it and we were sharing pictures because it's just a, yeah, a really kind of amazing experience you can have. And, it's imp and it was important as well what we were trying to do with instrumentation on the volcano and talking to the people in Goma, you know, about their experiences there. So what, what were the scientific experiments going on? Um, there's a number of things, you know, there's basically like some gas... Um, analysis of gases coming out of the volcano. There was seismology looking at, um, you know, basically looking at um, earthquake events associated with the behavior of the volcanoes. There's also um, infrasounds as well, trying to use different techniques to monitor the behavior of volcanoes. Hmm. And so, you know, deploying that and, and working with the scientists, because um, there's permanent installations there already from the Goma Volcanic Observatory. Mm -hmm. and from a, a, a team of Belgian scientists who worked closely with them. And then there was some instrumentation going in whilst we were on site as well. So, again, you know, I can't say too much about it, but, yeah, there was basically a bunch of stuff going on in the crater and around it to try and better understand the volcanic behaviour. Um, and I learned a huge amount because I didn't know anything about mantle geochemistry. I know nothing about infrasound. I know nothing about teleseismic you know, sort of analysis of volcanoes. So it was, it was a, hopefully some of that will come across truthfully that I was sort of learning things as I was talking to the scientists and as I'm trying to talk to the, you know, the audience, hopefully that will, that will be genuine. And what's, what is the level of um, sort of existential threat to the communities around there? Like, have they been um, 
have there been catastrophic events in the in the sort of m recent memory or yeah. so the most famous one one was the 2002 eruption of Niragongo on its mainly on its southern flank it ruptured on its flank so not from the summit but from the flank hmm. and a lava flow went from I think it was like 30 kilometers in 12 hours these recorded of up to I think 40 miles an hour very very low viscosity at like and some of the world's lowest um, silica content lavas come out of Niragongo so they're super fast Right. It went straight through the middle of the city, went across the runway of the airport and entered into Lake Kivu, the lake which is at the south side of of, of the city. So, you know, and there was, I think there was several tens of thousands of people displaced um, in 2002 because they fled back across the border into Rwanda, bearing in mind what had happened in Rwanda, you know, a decade before. Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of human flux due to civil conflicts and then you have a, a flux back due to you know nature you know a volcano erupts so people are saving stuff they're trying to leave and trying to look after themselves and their families and their and their livelihoods so it's it's amazing amazing place and there's been lots published on on that and we went to the airport and we sort of saw bits of that we walked on the 2002 flow um mm. It's, it's a, yeah, there's just so much going on in that place in terms of the geology and the people. It's incredible. How much time did you spend with, how much time did you spend in town uh, and how much yeah, camping in a volcano? <laughs> yeah, we had, we had, I think it was three nights in the volcano and then the rest of the time we were based in Goma and then heading out for days or, you know, out onto the lake and sort of doing different bits in different places. So. Um, we had three nights in the crater, but we also had three nights on the crater rim. So six nights in total, we were kind of outside of a nice hotel. We were up in the we were up in the uh, three and a half thousand meters as well, which wow. you notice. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. What minus five meters there, Graham? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'm at plus five. Um, you're plus five meters. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so that was really. Wow. Um, you know the kind of physical demands on the body of kind of moving around in that environment because Goma's at one and a half k anyway, right. the city where we were. So, you know, I, you know, I like to think of myself as being not hugely unfit, but you know, you felt that bite in the lungs when you were carrying an eighty-liter rucksack at three and a half thousand meters. You know, you yeah. felt it. Totally. Yeah, Did you train you, physically? You, you were posting some uh, some runs in craters and things. I like that. I did. It was my um, make the Strava front page, you know. But, I mean, I, I kind of recorded it because I walking up the volcano and down, you actually had a profile of its flanks. So you get this beautifully kind of, you know, volcano shape if you mirror the Strava profile. Right. Um, and then we did a big abseil down and pull out of the crater as well. And then when I was in the crater, I could do like a half a mile run or so. Um, uh, so I just kind of did it for, for shits and giggles, really. Very <laughs> <laughs> nice to see. And uh, the gorillas, I think, was that on your way back down um, on the hike yeah, out? We a, yeah, we had a day off where we could sort of go and do something. So I went to see the um, these are low, uh, highland gorillas. So oh, okay. there's only several hundred of these left in the world. 
Um, so wow. we took a trip out to, yeah, I mean, it's, I posted some pictures. It was an odd experience in that we were kind of like, you know, one of them like brushed by me as I was like standing there. So there was no distance between us and, and them. Wow. And they seemed so relaxed. They just seemed so, they were just sleeping, playing, throwing things at each other. They were, and it was like almost like an emotional experience to stand there because in one way you were thinking, why don't they run away? Because you could have guns and you could kill them. And there has been instances where, you know, gorillas have been have been killed because of disputes about what the, the land is being used for. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, you know, one of those, you know, silverbacks could have just stood up and popped your head off. Yeah. So there was this kind of really strange, beautiful standoff between you and the animal where you were, I don't know, you kind of just have so much respect for them and they're just like probably thinking, yeah, we could just mess you up if we wanted to, therefore we're not, we're not scared. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> really in control of the situation. Yes, they, yeah, they were totally in control of it, yeah. We have some photos uh, that Chris sent me and I would like to share them now and I'm realizing, Chris, do you have a, that, that if I share the photos and Chris talks, it's going to mess up the video. Chris, do you have a copy of the photos he sent me on this computer? You're on? I do, indeed. Okay. Yeah, let me just uh, find my own email. Okay. It's not going to be one of these horrific, you know, uh, you know, your, 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 your parents come back with 2,000 photos <laughs> from their holiday. It's about 12 <laughs> photos, I think. Uh, while you find those, Matt, let's, uh, let's talk about um, news. Yeah? yeah? News? Yeah, I have one, one, I have two bullet points. Okay. One, yeah. one, Sai Mirabat, great success. She's up yeah. and running, yeah, fully yeah. autonomous, and she's already driven one person crazy. Surprise. <laughs> talk about that? It's Matt. <laughs> <laughs> she's um, blocked. I mean, I'm completely oblivious good. at this point. <laughs> good. Um, so, yeah, I, eventually when things calm down here a bit, I will upgrade her and add some realistic functionality. But um, the real bullet point of news that I wanted to talk to you about, Matt, is uh, this weekend I'm going to be brushing up on my R and my Python pandas. And mm-hmm. the question for you is, do you know of some good advanced tutorials? Um, for pandas? Yeah, or yeah, preferably pandas, but R two would be fine. I don't know anything about R. Okay. Um, the couple of occasions where I've wielded it, I found it so strange looking that I'm yeah, not very why, far. Why are they, where are, what are all these arrows doing? <laughs> yeah, and percentage signs around operators and weird stuff like that. Um, and I guess maybe also I've talked about pandas before because I haven't really internalized the, um, the the data frame structure, which R completely depends on. So maybe that's another mental block for me. Um, so yeah, no, I can't I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But I mean, the Pi Data Conference has tutorials kind of like SciPy does, right. and I'm. Like so, Pi Data is much more oriented around data analytics, and I'm sure that there's some good pandas stuff in there. There's also been at SciPy and at Pi Data, Wes McKinney, who was the originator of the pandas project, has given talks and things 
they're not highly technical they're a bit more conceptual but if if you're also struggling with the sort of mental model of the data frame maybe those are a good thing to watch because you find out a bit about what the motivation was for inventing pandas in the first place um yeah so sorry i it, i'll have a think about it and maybe drop something else in the show notes but i can't think of anything for now Okay. Yeah. Usually what I do in these cases is just like find somebody else's project and then go in and break it and try to fix it again. So maybe yeah. that's what I'll, what I'll Pandas is like, like this huge, I mean, the API is enormous. So, yeah. It, it, you know, I mean, on, on the one hand, I sort of feel like maybe you can't learn it without just getting in and getting really muddy. Um, but on the other hand, how you're going to discover all of the nooks and crannies of it without some help, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't um, got into Jake Vanderplas's book yet, but I think, did you have that book as well? Like in, something like Fundamentals of Data Science in Python or something? No. Um, anyway, it's, it, it has a bunch of stuff on pandas in there too, but I haven't. Okay. Well, I've done projects with it before, and I, I just want to get back uh, fluent again. Chris, how's the picture search going? I've got, I've got them. Okay. Yeah. Show that screen. Uh, what, what do I do? Do I? Um, uh, There's a little green button okay. on the left hand control panel. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, I've kind of, I've, I'm not going to do this in the kind of most sensible way. I've realised. <laughs> let me, let me, let me see. Um, the green button, share screen. Okay. Application window. This is when you're dealing with idiots, right? <laughs> can you see that? Yep. yep. You can see my email inbox as well, but there's nothing that interesting in there, I don't think. Everybody take a screenshot. Yes. <laughs> it's just my mum telling me I owe money just above where I've scrolled from. Um, yeah, so on the, on the right, you can see the just some of the photos. So this, this one is from where we were, you know, the, the resort where we were staying, which was uh, just in something south part of Game on Lake Kivu, but it was kind of amazing sort of view out. This, this lake here, Lake Kivu, was in a, in a, in a rift basin. But it was, you can see it was hardship drink, sitting there with a the beer, kind of watching that, that view. Um, the next picture is more interesting. The, what, you know, kind of getting four tons of equipment up to a, Three and a half thousand meters, so two kilometers of vertical ascent requires a lot of people. So there's a very efficient portering society set up at, at Niragongo. So um, tourists and any other groups who want to go up, you can book porters to, to help with the equipment. And it's actually very, very well organized. There's a porter, I guess I'd say society or an organization. So all the people you can see here lined up, um, they all, um, you know, they're, they all sign up and they can come along and they get called and asked to do different jobs and things and the money's allocated all equally and it's a kind of living wage sort of thing as well. Um, so this is us just kind of packing up, ready to go up. Is this, uh, are, are those Humvees in the back right, are those UN uh, vehicles or was that just the helicopter? No, they were, yeah, they were Virunga um, National Park sort of thing. So that was the National Park um, kind of staff who... Um, drove us around a little bit, plus the four-wheel drives. But that group of people, or the porters, is amazing. The minimum age is 14, and there's no discrimination wow. of 
sex or anything so um or gender so you know there was 14 year old women carrying bags as readily as you know these 40 year old 50 year old dudes and things although we did try and triage the bags because some of the bags they were all supposed to be under 15 kilos but you know sometimes they're a bit heavier so we tried to kind of allocate them in a in a fair way because it you know as you would really and i don't think we were being sexist by doing that it's just you know why give you know somebody much smaller and much heavier bag did the did this group stay uh when you when you camped out did they stay up there with you no no they, i mean honestly these people made it up and down the mountain in the time we got about halfway up i mean <laughs> in and Wellington boots and slippers. I mean, it was frightening how fit and nimble these people were on that terrain compared to us in our 100-pound walking trousers and 200-pound walking boots. Yeah. It was... And they were carrying, you know, and, and, you know, people carrying loads of the bags on their heads. So we had, like, a you know, big rucksack and nobody wants to wear it like a rucksack that carried it on their head. <laughs> so... <laughs> It was kind of, yeah, you felt a bit daft, really. Um, yeah, just going to the next picture. I'll show a few more. This is some kind of sciencey ones. But that, this is us, kind of the kind of the contributors group who were involved. So this is on the way up the, the volcano. Um, so it was nice to make friends and scientists kind of sharing um, stories about, you know, how challenging it was trying to make things work for TV. Um, but it's Jeff Johnson on the right, Zan Van Tulliken on the left, and then uh, Kayla Yakovina, who's one of the petrologists in the centre there. So all with different backgrounds. Zan's um, been on TV quite a lot before. He's into basically like refugee medicine and humanitarian medicine and things. Um, so that was good. Uh, are, yeah. these, are these uh, additional volcanoes in the background behind you guys? This is a smaller one called Shahiri. So this is a kind of parasitic cone on the side of Niragongo. Uh -huh. I say parasitic, it still gets up to like two and a half thousand meters or something. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's still a monster on the side of a, a bigger monster. So that's a big cone you can see in the, in the background there. So that was, um, yeah, just the landscape was just ridiculous. I, I don't know why I got it into my head, but when I saw that picture, I somehow saw <laughs> the guy on the left with you in a kind of baby Bjorn kind of baby carrier. <laughs> I don't know. And I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> you, so yeah, sorry. it's um, You know what? I wish it was because the, the last kind of picture, Ruth. <laughs> I don't think Zan. Um, I don't think Zand was in a good state to carry me up the last bit, really. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I, what the, the blue pack I've got there—that's a—that's a kind of seventy-five, eighty-liter pack, and it was full, and it was probably about seventeen or eighteen kilos. So it had just compressed your spine. <laughs> so I, pretty much, yeah. Zand is eight foot tall. <laughs> Taylor's seven five. Um, it was, yeah, it was kind of hard work. Yeah. Um, I can barely trying imagine. To carry all this. Um, if you skip two down, the next one's of me with the, that's uh, near Gonga, the crater with the lava lake at the bottom, degassing. Crazy. Very cool. This is a photo. So that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Sorry for the, for the uh, okay. people that are listening on the radio. This is a, a photo of Chris standing on the crater rim. And uh, there's, I mean, it's literally a pool of molten lava off gassing. 
not even it just yeah. it's it seems like it's meters away it's just is there yeah. what's the sound sort of scape like there and, and oh, the wow. smell scape so the amazing thing is the sound if you turned your back on the lava lake which is never a good thing to do i guess it sounds like um a churning ocean it's just a relentless like crashing and and, and churning and bubbling noise so it's it, oh. that's the thing i can most compare it wow. most readily compare it to um rock like that's the <laughs> that's the thing it's so easy to forget isn't it it's like got, it's got the density and you know i mean it's rock it, yeah, it is know, but i mean it's, it's, you know, it's like, you know, like a bunch isn't it so it's got like it, it's actually got a you know a kind of um a, a, a fluidity to it because there's these big bubbles that explode and the gas comes up and you get the crystalline and the mushy bits thrown up into the air so there's that constant churn um yeah, yeah. so it's yeah that, that i mean that lava lake is 400 meters in diameter that's how big that is question from my picture but the um the whole craters i think it was i think it was like a k and a half in diameter and it's got multiple terraces you can see the terrace the light yeah. gray area just down to my my right in that picture that's where we camped so directly next to the swirling churling bubbling popping lava <laughs> not yeah. directly next to it i got some static on twitter about this from volcanologists saying you know having somebody not without safety equipment even remotely with the lava lake in the background is bad professional practice because it encourages the the public to go and hang around lava lakes was effectively yeah. the message on twitter from a one person um and my point was you know even when we were camping down there we had co2 detectors we had gas masks we had um you know full 82 page you know blah blah, blah risk assessment we um you know even though it looked really close it's actually not you know so there was constant like night watch and monitoring of what's going on so it's not it it I couldn't quite work out if the person was objecting to any photo of somebody with a lava lake in the background wearing a bobble hat or not. <laughs> you know, even people go to Kilauea, you know, people go to Kilauea and go along the south bank to look for lava flows, have their pictures taken. You know, is that right? That's dangerous. I'm not sure. How many? How many of the 92 bags were scientific equipment? Oh, um, it's a very good question. I'm not entirely sure. Um, not the majority. I'd have said most of it was like. First aid kits, dry food, you know, um, uh, tents, sleeping bags. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of other stuff that is required to make something like this happen, which isn't just science kits. Sure, um, of course. So maybe you know, maybe a dozen of them were kind of science kit um, that was brought in for this. And the rest of it was all just kind of life support, you would say. You know, climbing harnesses, ropes. A locking frame, I mean, a full-on sort of mountaineering gear to, to kind of make this sort of thing happen. Yeah. And yeah, there's just a few more pictures of us with the lava lake. And then if you go down, there's one of me and Kayla, which we tweeted, which was um, Kelly Akavina, who's a, a igneous petrologist, interested in geochemistry of the crust and um, petrological evolution of the crust and volcanoes especially. So she brought along this book box, which was made to kind of measure gases and um, the gases. Like a, oh, yeah, yeah, like chemical composition. Um, 
uh, yeah, chromatography or something. Yeah. yeah, so she put this at different locations and we were trying to measure. So there was some Twitter traffic about some of the challenges with trying to get the box to, you know, to have the fluxes high enough to read it and things. But you can really get a sense from that picture of how crazy the lava lake is. You know, the, these fissures would open up, which would just degas massively. Um, you know, so this photograph is taken about 300 meters above the lava lake or more. So we okay, that's you know, that was my next Half a kilometer away and three and and 300 meters up. Uh, this is an irresponsible photo of somebody wearing a bubble hat. <laughs> was it cold? Yes, up there it was um, probably just above freezing at night. Um, uh -huh. yeah, when you were down in the crater, obviously you got a lot of warmth from the lava lake. But it was much more comfortable in the tents when we were when we were down there. Yeah, of course. How much? Uh, what do you think the temperature difference was between the top here on the rim and inside the crater? Oh, uh, good question. I mean, it could be as much as 10 degrees, you know, it was, pretty, it was pretty extreme. I mean, there was a lot of heat being kept in that crater because reflections back from the dark rocks inside. And you also had, um, when, when it was still, you didn't get so much wind shear taking and circulating things within the crater. So the temperature was a bit more stable. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it, was really, it was really cool. And yeah, next picture is just the tents down on that, on that, um, that, that, terrace where we were so we had like little tents and things it's pretty cool um me and gas masks and everything all very safe because the sulfur was yes yeah, so the smellscape was pretty intense with the sulfur um all around the campsite there were fissures with sulfur gases coming out <laughs> 70 to 200 degrees um wow. and really quite intense and bite and i'm asthmatic as well so you know i had to kind of monitor that quite carefully Right. Oh, because of the particulate matter. Um, do we, did you have to sleep in a in a gas mask? No, no, no. It wasn't so bad. You you kind of just kept the door closed. But this Pelly's hair as well. You know the very fine fragments from the explosive volcanism. So this very fine glassy material can get into your nose and your eyes and your throat and can damage your lungs. Mm -hmm. um, Pelly's hair. So there's that on top of the pure gases as well. Um, right. So, you know, you're sort of taken very seriously because you're dealing with human beings and lives and things. So, we, you know, there's nothing left to chance and there's very strict protocols for how you conduct yourself. How, what are the safety points, protocols you know? for the, for the um, Sherpa crew? They have less because they weren't really, they're under the employ of the National Park. So you basically tell them to go slowly, look after themselves, hydrate and all this. But, you know, those people are from those mountains. So... it's hard or slash not appropriate to tell well you can sort of advise people i think and say this and that but um you know they have to be safe around you so that you're safe as a group as well if that makes sense so you right. kind of tell them what your sort of hse standards are um and then you know kind of try and reinforce that when you're when you're moving around um yeah. oh and then there's a gorilla there's some gorilla pictures that um, the gorilla Pictures are uh, a little bit disconcerting insofar as you're. It seems like you're right next to the gorillas. How far? There's a, there's a huge silverback gorilla, teeth exposed, <laughs> presumably roaring. And it, what are you five meters away from this thing? Where that photo was taken, probably about four meters away. Oh. 
Um, so these were all taken with an iPhone, so nothing, no Zoom. Um, wow. uh, so there was a protocol of being seven meters away from the gorillas, <clears throat> but because it's a, a, yeah, seven meters, you know, and if they beat their chest, you have to bow and dip your head and don't make direct eye contact. So there was a lot of kind of safety and, and things we were told about before, but because it's a very dynamic environment, i.e. gorillas don't just stay still, they jump out of trees and creep up on you and things. <laughs> there, was, there were times when the baby was coming over and trying to pull your trousers and the, the silverback would reach out without even looking and just grab the baby gorilla and yank it back towards, you know, the clearing and things. So it was, it was just oh, unbelievable. <laughs> that, that, so was the, was the interaction with the gorillas planned? Did, uh, uh, did they know that they were in this area? I mean, how, how much warning did you have? Yeah, yeah, so Virunga National Park, it's an amazing setup. They, you know, there's a park and they protect within those boundaries. Um, so they have trackers who go out, um, I think every morning, and they go out and track where the families are. There's four families of gorillas, and they mm -hmm. track where they are. And then they're in contact with the, the guides back at the base. And when you turn up, they then take you our walk was something like an hour and 40 minutes through pretty intense rainforest and heat. And then we got closer and closer and we got quieter and quieter. And then they started hacking through the undergrowth and then suddenly they just point and you're standing, you know, right next to <laughs> you know, 15 gorillas. It's, it's out of body experience really. Like, you know, my heart rate on my, on my heart rate on my watch just doubled. Oh man, I bet. I I can't imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I won't, I, mean, I won't go through all the other photos, but I'm happy for you to post them. But there's, um, yeah, you know, just one photo I wanted to show you was uh, the third from the end is the volcano looming over Goma. So there's a black and white photo. Right. There's a, uh, this is a photo of uh, the town of Goma, you say? Um, Goma, yeah, it's a black and white picture with the volcano sort of in the background. I think it's the third from the last one in the pack I've got. Very, yeah. very artsy. It's, it's nice. It's, uh, the, the, the town is, is short with respect to vertical height. I think there's a couple of two-story buildings I can see here, but most of, yeah. the, of, of the village is uh, just small, small homes. And in the background, as Chris says, is a gigantic active volcano. Where did you take the picture from? That was taken from a UN helicopter. Oh, that was so, from the helicopter, okay. Yes, the next photo is you know, another picture we kind of tweeted a group of us from, um, I was in front of the helicopter that took us up to Naimulagira, the other volcano, but this is taken from the, the side of that volcano as we were coming into land at the UN right. airport, UN base there. And, but it really gives you a sense, doesn't it, of, of how close Yeah. This volcano is to a city with 1.3 million people in it. I thought that photo, more than anything, really, to me, brought it home. Scientists who feel really passionate about hazard analysis and things, and why why some of their work really matters. Why why was the city positioned there? Is there a is there a is it hydrothermal springs or? I don't know about the the deep history, but there's lots of reasons to be there, right? There's fishing in the lake. Uh -huh. There's mineral wealth given by the volcano and in the older basement rocks. Mm -hmm. Really rich um, soil for farming. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons people live in places which otherwise you think are really dangerous. Like, why would you go there? But um, if you live in a place like that, you 
you live there for all the opportunities that are afforded to you, but you have to be aware of the... Um, and Gamer, for me, really wonderfully summed that up, that in the opportunity and the threat. Yes, indeed. Um, is that... Oh, no, there's one more picture that I wanted to ask you a question about, which is the... Um, picture of something, some man-made structure sticking out of the water, bubbling up, and there's a, what is this, a uh, poison warning yes. sign? That's, um, that's uh, so Lake Kivu, which is just south of Goma, is famous because it has, um, it's below, I think it's 15 meters, it's basically saturated with respect to CO2. Uh-huh. CO2 is being kept down is because of a salinity gradient. So there's a dense saline layer which is stopping the CO2 basically overturning and coming to the surface. Right. So, and a lot of that CO2 partly is coming from some of the volcanic activity because there's right. subaqueous vents and it's partly coming from um, organic matter that's been introduced into the lake. So, particulate organic matter that's um, and there's methane as well. So in Rwanda, on the Rwandan side, they're actually producing the methane mm -hmm. and they're re-injecting the CO2 back into the lake. In the Goma or in the, the, the Congolese side, there this is this was just a pilot scheme to see if they could vent the CO2 to make the lake safer. Ah. This borehole here, this pipe goes down to 47 meters. In this part of the bay, the, the water depth was 147. Wow. So this is going down, you know, just about a third of the way. And that is just under natural pressure, bubbling CO2 and sulfur out. It's, That's it's what amazing. But I think I tweeted some links out about Lake Neos in Cameroon, where there was a, a lake overturn event, CO2 came out and it killed. I think about over a thousand people in a in a village. Wow. Um, you know, handling and understanding the dynamism of that gas is in the lake. One point three million people, plus you know people in the surrounding areas, of course, as well, is a really important bit of that. You know, understanding the hazard of this region. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Interesting stuff. I'm I'm excited to uh, to hear the rest of the story in the documentary. Yeah, me too. I mean, we, yeah, we, we, yeah, I hope it'd be great. I mean, we, you know, I'm not I, because it's all coming out. You know, we can't really stay. You know, we shared a few photos and said a little bit about what we were doing, but um, yeah, it should have a nice mix of science and excitement and a human emotional aspects as well. So I kind of have hopes that I'm just stop sharing. I kind of have hopes it's um, uh, be an interesting piece of telly. Yeah, I hope we have a way to watch it outside the UK. Right. <laughs> yes, as well. There's a PBS version. Oh, okay. Awesome. In the US, but I don't know about Canada because you're in the sticks, aren't you, so much? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. You can, can we buy bootleg copies off you? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> when it comes out, we will. Um, we will. Set, I'm sure you will tweet out links to where where the show can be found, and we will put them on the undersampled site or the show notes. And for everyone that was listening on the radio today, we'll give you. Um, I'm, I'm going to post a um, 
a link to the to the photos in the show notes as well, so you can go browse through those. Um, Chris, thanks for coming on again. Uh, we we always look forward to seeing you on the show. No pleasure to come back again. Um, no, really nice to be able to talk a little bit about what what we were up to out there and. Um, to say you know science can be very exciting in different places i think i touched on this on the blog after we've been in new york together and sort of said about um you know science isn't static and has to happen in a conference room or somewhere, but it can happen in like these amazing wild places and you can have lots of associated experiences with it so very fortunate to have done this um but hopefully you know we'll share some of it via the program and other things as well so yeah hopefully you'll have me back in the future. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next time I can't make it, you can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> Matt, make sure you, you go back and listen to the beginning of this episode so you can hear um, Chris's impersonation of you, which is much better than mine, by the way. <laughs> Slightly less Australian. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you for joining us on. Oh, by the way, Matt. Oh God! Now what? Yeah. <laughs> this is Understandable Radio episode fifty. Oh, not that you care, but um, sign us off. Fifty episodes—that's pretty impressive. Thanks, Graham, for your hard work, your continued work on this on this show, <laughs> for tolerating my uh, ineptitude slash um, forgetfulness. Um, thanks, thanks a lot, Chris. Always good talking to you. Awesome to see you again. Nice talking to you too. too. Tune in next time. I'm on vacation for a couple of weeks, so uh, I don't know when the next one is going to be, but maybe I can do one from somewhere exciting like uh, Bryce Canyon National Park on my phone. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Well, don't don't overcommit yourself, but that would be awesome. I wasn't going to mention the vacation, and actually I've been holding back our last episode from release so that I have these two episodes to release while you're gone. Sorry, you were trying to paper over the crack that I just... Well... <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, but anyway, so this, that episode, out. this episode won't come out for two weeks, by the way, because, uh, I mean, it won't come out as a podcast for two weeks. Um, so we still have one to release before this. So anyway, see you sometime. See you next time. Yes. Bye.